today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Mourning is, is such a difficult aspect of this. Uh, oftentimes, we don't know how to mourn, what to say, uh, uh, and and I think we need to to rationalize that and come to grips with that. Uh, and I'm hoping our next guest, I know our next guest, can can shed some light and some perspective on this. Irene Gamble is the uh, director of the Modern Literature and Culture Research Center at Ryerson University uh, with an expertise in mourning and the culture and media and, and of course, loss of grieving. Uh, Irene, first and foremost, I really do appreciate you joining us on this uh, very important day. Thank you. Thank you. How do how do we mourn? You know, for many of us, and, and uh, you know, I, I was not alive uh, for World War II, nor just around the Korean War, I guess, is, is when I entered this mortal coil. Uh, but it was such an abstract thing. I mean, we knew that war was violent, and we knew that people died, and it was terrible, and we knew they fought for our freedom. Uh, but, you know, it was something that we couldn't really relate to. Have, have, has the recent involvement of Canadian troops in places like Afghanistan and, and other places where we've actually seen, again, our neighbors, our friends, our relatives serve and come back and, and see how this has impacted them, has it brought a, a maybe a, a much more clear picture of if, if what past generations went through? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, mourning is such a uh, difficult process in the sense that uh, uh, for those who lose a loved one, the first impact, the first response is typically just shock and disbelief and so on. And it takes a while to adjust to that. And it's all the worse uh, when the person who dies is a young person. And uh, there is that uh, loss of, of, of a life that was yet to be lived. So I think it's hard enough when we lose someone who is, let's say, uh, in, in older age with our parents and so on, where we are kind of prepared for that. But even then, it's incredibly hard to bear. So the process of mourning is a very, very difficult one, and it, it requires kind of um, a, a certain a certain ways of going about it. I think we see it now also, certainly with the war, but we also see it uh, a bit with COVID-19, where we look at uh, sort of statistics and mass death. So war often brings the phenomenon of mass death as well. And with mass death, we often have that added problem of the individual loss being obscured, which can make it all the harder to endure. So a, a, a lot of lot of important uh, issues that uh, we need to consider when it comes to mourning. And, and it's a much different perspective, isn't it, when it hits home? I, I can still remember, and on this day, it, it comes back to me every year on Remembrance Day, when my, my cousin died. Uh, you know, he was an American, uh, and he died in, in Vietnam in that conflict. Uh, and, but it was 1968. I was still a high school student and uh, you know, yeah. came home from writing an exam. And my, my mom told me uh, that Rick had, had been killed. And, and now he was only a couple of years older than I. And, and But it, it had this profound impact on me. Like, my God, you know, we I saw the pictures of the Vietnam War every night on the national news and, you know, Walter Cronkite report. But when it, it, it gets brought home to you when it's somebody that you know and, and you say he's he's he's, he's gone. And uh, it, it leaves yeah. a void, doesn't it? That's exactly it. That is the uh, the issue when somebody is close. And that is also what makes us uh, empathize with others who have experienced losses and others uh, who have not come home. And uh, the research that uh, I've done focuses very much on the sort of losses of the First World War in where there was also mass death, you know, even at the Battle of the Mirage and so on. So many people who died there. 
and uh, the um, uh, woman artist that uh, I work on, Mary Rita Hamilton, she herself had experienced a lot of loss in her own life, and she was able to empathize. And so her goal was, not only did she want to see the battlefields for herself, in, uh, during this First World War, but she wanted to pay tribute to the soldiers and aid in that process of mourning. And she did so by heading out into the battlefields and living there for two and a half years and then painting those scenes. And when you look at these paintings today, the kind of emotion that you get from them is something that, that is a very conducive to uh, coming to terms with a loss and, and feeling the empathy. Uh, for example, in, in, in several of these paintings, she puts herself deep down in the trench. So she doesn't look from high up, but she really clambers down into a trench and paints from there, meaning she is very close to the position where the soldiers would have been uh, when they died and uh, uh, and certainly also where they lived. And so those are some of the strategies that uh, she used in terms of coming to terms with death, uh, with loss, and also with death on a mass scale, which I think is, is a very difficult situation, which is typically brought about by war. And... There's a great deal of similarity between what we just talked about and, and, of course, the families that were left behind in the First World War, too, because it was, as you say, a world war, uh, and many people had not experienced anything like that. There had been wars previous to this, but but not in this country. Uh, it hadn't happened, and, and uh, all of a sudden, our, our young men in, that, in those days were going over there. Uh, we didn't know what they were going to be facing. We didn't hear too many in the way of stories, obviously, because of, of the, the lack of communication that we had back in those days. Uh, and then we see the works of, of people like like Mary Wider Hamilton and others, uh, and and it I, I guess it gives us kind of a, a full frontal approach as to what they actually saw, what they actually felt, and it's very chilling. Absolutely, and uh, the uh, when Mary Wider Hamilton, for example, headed over, which was in April of 1919, she had been rejected as a war artist because she was a woman. And so when she finally got over, it was 1919. But 1919, and especially the spring of 1919, is actually quite important also for the history of World War One because that was the time when the sort of cleanup process began. Many of the uh, fields had been untouched until then. They were still, there was still the barbed wire the dead had not been buried, and there were so many who were still missing in action. So it, it was actually a very traumatizing time. And she would later wrap this up by saying uh, it was like living in a graveyard. But I felt this was a duty that somebody must do. So in her mind, she had to head out there. She had to witness these awful um, uh, places and at the same time also pay tribute to the soldiers. And so what she would do is she would travel from place to place where the Canadian soldiers had fought and she would paint the grave sites, both the individuals, so the isolated graves that had to be exhumed at the time in order to create these large mass graveyards as we know them today in, in, in northern France and Belgium. 
and uh, she would track them down and paint them and then bring them home. So this was part of her morning, and it was part of how she was trying to help people in Canada mourn. And uh, what happens very often after a war, after crisis, after catastrophe, often there is a sense, especially on the part of governments, to turn a leaf, to start anew, and then to forget about those who were actually lost uh, in the battle, in the crisis, and so on. And for Mary Rita Hamilton, that was something that must not happen. She felt that she had a duty to go and perform this visual witnessing, not in a super glamorous, uh, glamorized form, but to pay tribute to humanity, to the individuals who had suffered there and who had died. And she did so in these many paintings. And some of these paintings, you look at them and you see a trench, for example, trenches on the thumb. You see a trench, white chalk, you know, of these typical trenches at the thumb, and then poppies growing out of them. And she is standing right in front of and in the middle of that trench, and in, in that particular painting that she painted in 1919, you get a sense the war is over. We are now commemorating those who are absent. And you look at many of her paintings and you see the crosses and you see roads, you know, that are empty. And she inscribes the absence, you know, of the soldiers. So in a sense, you feel without glamorizing without being very graphic about this you feel the absence of the soldiers and that's how she performed mourning that's how she helped contribute to the country's mourning at that time i mean you've you've studied her work extensively as a matter of fact you've, you've written a book about this called i can only paint the the story of battlefield artist mary writer hamilton how did that experience impact her uh, to actually be there where this was going on, where the dying was happening. Uh, it, it had to have had a, a, an impact on uh, just to be in that, in the presence of that as she, as she was doing this work and, 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 and taking everything in. Good point. Uh, she was in the battlefields for two and a half years, which was basically unprecedented. The official war artists were typically sent uh, to the front, and they would stay there for a few weeks, they would sketch, and then they would return to their studios and prepare sort of large-scale works in their studios in London or Paris. In her case, it was very different. She was an unofficial war artist. She basically funded herself, although she received some funding also from the uh, British Columbia War Amputations Club, who sent her over in the first place. And while she was there, during that two and a half years, you can see the transformation that she underwent. Um, uh, her descendants donated uh, her uh, letters written from the battlefields to my research center at uh, Ryerson here in Toronto. And it was uh, just absolutely amazing to see her uh, sense of change also and, and her humbleness but you can sense how she also suffers from what she sees and how it impacts her when she says, you know, I cannot 
step in front of these graves without tears in my eyes. And uh, she uh, sort of threw out this experience after two and a half years. She wanted to continue, but she basically could no longer uh, continue. She could no longer paint. She suffered from uh, a severe breakdown following this expedition and uh, in a way was able to heal herself and help herself, but she was never the same person again. She clearly suffered from PTSD, uh, the, the post-traumatic stress syndrome, and uh, this manifested in all sorts of different ways. So at the same time, she was a very strong woman. She was a determined woman, somebody who, once she was able, a few years later, when she had picked herself up again, brought all of her paintings home to Canada. And there were, at this point, I found it about uh, 320, over 320 of these uh, paintings and drawings that she had prepared in the trenches of northern France and uh, uh, Belgium. And um, she brought all of these home, and then she even worked on exhibiting them. So she was a strong woman who was committed to this art and who was committed to telling that story. And I think that is something very, very admirable. Well, we can't learn unless we educate ourselves about this. And, and her work was such a key part of that uh, for so many of us, of course, who weren't there at that time and, and, and wanted to understand what was going on. Uh, I think your point's well taken, Irene. An awful lot of the, the material that we had available to us was a rather sanitized version uh, of what may have occurred uh, during that horrific war. Uh, and it's it's the work of, of people like Mary Ryder Hamilton that I think brought it uh, to our attention and, and I think underscored uh, the horror of war and the impact that it had, uh, not just on the soldiers, of course, and those who died or those who survived, uh, but she she experienced that that same trauma and it had an impact on her life too. And that that, that speaks volumes, doesn't it? It does. And uh, it was going through the trenches in terms of trying to experience uh, where the soldiers had been. And she experienced that through her own difficulties. You know, she had to uh, schlep her uh, painting paraphernalia. Often she went without food because it was difficult to get food. Often it was there, there was no place to overnight at the Somme, for example. And at times she would overnight then in these pillboxes, in these uh, cement structures that were part of the shelter of the war. So it was a pretty tough life. The other thing that is fascinating to me is that Mary Ryder Hamilton undertook this journey when she was uh, 51 years old. So, you know, this, this was in a time and uh, when, when people in their 50s might plan sort of uh, early retirement and so on. But for Mary Ryder Hamilton, it was kind of the point when she embarked on her expedition in order to tell this important story of mourning and witnessing. And the other interesting thing, though, is it goes to her adventurous spirit, is that on her passport, she had indicated that she was a 36-year-old, a 36-year-old. I don't quite know how she finagled that, but she obviously <laughs> was able to rejuvenate herself uh, with that and uh, with, a, with, a, with, a, with an age that was more in line with uh, war work at the time. And, but she did play a very important role in terms of telling that story and also finding a language 
through which to tell that story. She told that story visually. And she said in a letter to one of her friends, I cannot talk. I can only paint, meaning that talking, what she witnessed, was so dramatic and difficult. She could not talk about it. And, and, but painting was her medium to communicate what she saw and what she felt. And so that then became the title for my book, I Can Only Paint, uh, because it seemed to encapsulate what she was doing. She was using her tool as an artist to talk about this and to talk about this in this highly nuanced fashion that was not, um, that certainly escaped the propaganda of the war. And that showed exactly what it was, that showed the destruction of the earth, that showed the absence of the soldiers, that showed, you know, how animal life had been tortured in that war as well. It showed all of that. And at the same time, uh, it was something that still brought a sense of um, of the mourning process and getting through it. And uh, I think another element that... Uh, well, we, we have to leave it here, I'm afraid. I mean, we're a little bit tight for time here because of some of our other commitments. But uh, I want to remind our listeners, uh, the book is called I Can Only Paint, uh, the story of battlefield artist uh, Mary Ryder Hamilton. Thank you so much for the, the great work and research you've done on this. And thank you for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you so much. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.